Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm and I'm your host, James Summary. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's episode. So this week we're talking about AI and NLP, so artificial intelligence and natural language processing. So are you keen to learn the basics? Are you looking to use AI and NLP in your company? Could you? Should you? Well, those questions are going to be answered today because I'm joined by Valentin Tablan, who is SVP for Artificial Intelligence at IESO Digital Health. What a job title that is. So IESO Digital Health is a really cool health tech company. They specialize in mental health and they allow people to essentially get cognitive behavioral therapy online because that's what IESO is delivering. So anybody experiencing common mental health issues can go on their platform and get that therapy. So Valentin has spent almost 20 years in this field. field. He's definitely an expert in natural language processing, knowledge representation and artificial intelligence. And at IESO, him and his team, well, they apply these AI techniques to IESO's enormous data set to determine which of their evidence-based therapies and interventions are going to be most effective. So under Valentin's leadership, IESO's essentially created the industry's first real-time AI-enabled tools that augment therapists, which in turn increases quality and improves outcomes and stuff. Before going to IESO, Valentin was actually part of the Amazon Alexa team, which he goes into a huge amount of detail about on the podcast, which is super interesting. And this week's a little bit different. We really go into the tech side of things rather than focusing too much on the business side of things we do touch on that but the tech side is super interesting and valentin's definitely the expert to hear this from so whether you're a beginner whether you're an intermediate or whether you are looking to implement this stuff in your company and learn a heck of a lot valentin's going to cover all of this in the episode so If you want to get in touch with us, head over to the description of this episode. You can find the links to all of our socials and websites and stuff. Head over to my socials, actually, if you want to check out my latest article for Forbes, which is on a new report just released by Microsoft, all about how the UK is lagging behind in AI in most places except healthcare. So check that out and then go ahead and enjoy this episode of the podcast. Valentin, how are you doing? Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. Hi, James. I'm absolutely fine and happy to be on this podcast. Thank you. Excellent. Where are you talking to us from today, Valentin? Whereabouts are you based? So I'm currently in uh, one of the meeting rooms at the ISO headquarters in Cambridge, England. Ah, very nice. Very nice. So... I've obviously heard loads about your background, really awesome stuff. And I think what we're going to talk about today is all about the technology side and everything that you've got in your background that relates to AI, deep learning, et cetera, and how you apply that to ISO Health. So really excited to get going. So why don't you kick us off by telling us all about your background and tell us your story? Sure. Cool. Well, uh, I'm, uh, my name is Valentin. <laughs> I'm a AI scientist and have been doing this for about 20 years. My specialty is in an area of AI that's called natural language processing, which is to do with um, helping computer work with um, language, with human language. I did my PhD at University of Sheffield here in the UK, which is one of the the most famous centers for natural language processing in Europe, I would say. I was working there in a um, research group called GATE, which stands for General Architecture for Text Engineering. So we're about 10 to 15 people and we're working on a piece of software that's um, similar to a um, integrated development environment like programmers use. Only this one was used for uh, doing NLP tasks or doing language engineering. Anyway, after my time at university, the the first proper job, so to speak, that I got was (laughs) at uh, Amazon here in Cambridge, uh, working uh, as part of the Alexa team. And I joined them before Alexa was, uh, was launched, so it was still a very closely guarded secret. And I was working on a team that um, focused on the, the collection of common knowledge, the kind of knowledge that is behind um, Alexa's uh, common knowledge answers. So if you ask Alexa, for instance, uh, when was the Battle of Waterloo, that's the kind of, um, of information that our team was collecting and making available to the, to the Alexa personality so it can answer your question. And I stayed there for about two and a half years. 
And after that, I moved to my current job here at um, AISA Digital Health, um, mainly because I wanted to, to do something that's a bit more impactful on a, on a social scale. Uh, I wanted to move in something that I felt made a difference and the uh, healthcare felt like it, it, it answered that need for me. So uh, I've been with AISA for about uh, three years now, just over three years. And again, I work on, on the same kind of uh, area in natural language processing. What AISA does is that we facilitate uh, mental health therapy. So conversations between therapist and patient is just instead of those happening in the therapy room, they happen online by our platform. And that means that we, we have collected a very large uh, corpus of these conversations. And the only way to process those, given the scale of the, of the data set we have, is to use uh, automatic techniques or use computing. And that's where my kind of skill set comes in. I can, uh, I can work with that type of text to, to extract insights from it. Very cool. And what a skill set you have. So I'm, I'm going to pull you up now on a few terms and I'm going to try and uh, get some definitions off you. So obviously natural language processing, I'm sure most people listening will know, know what that is, but then a subset of that, which you became an expert in. So information extraction and information retrieval. So you're taking natural language, i.e. like we're talking to talking to each other in now and you're coming up with essentially what computer systems algorithms they're going to pull that into structured data that's exactly it on the on, on the information extraction side and so if you think about um, a conversation like we're having and an excel spreadsheet so what the conversation is what is normally termed unstructured data so the information is there but there's no explicit structure to it Whereas a, a spreadsheet, for instance, is very structured. You have rows and columns. Usually you have the same data sets in the column and you have the same semantics in, in a row. Uh, and converting from one to the other is essentially the job of information extraction. So it's identifying things like entities of interest. It's a one, one way of speaking. And those can be things like dates, names of people, names of locations, all kinds of other events that you may be interested in. Oh, I see. So if I've got this right then, so what you're doing is you're structuring. So, so as you say, like a date, take that as an example. So if, if I'm going to wrap my head around this, so there's obviously lots and lots and lots of different ways that within natural language, you can express a date. I might say 12th of the July, 12th of July. I might say July 12th. I might say lots of different things to, to express that. I might say tomorrow or yesterday, all these different things. So you then saying that all those different things in that column or row you're then equating to one single structured piece of data and you're trying to find all the different ways of saying the one thing that's that's exactly it so given the variety of ways we can express a piece of knowledge a piece of information information extraction converts that into for instance in this case what would be a date field in in an excel spreadsheet or a database mm. that has a precise meaning and regardless of what you said yesterday last thursday or the 12th of july they all get mapped to the same mm. value that's interesting then so in terms of, of then extrapolating that to then different people's voices essentially those variations right how does that then work and how is that then built into a computer program like i don't know so otter.ai is one that i use right so i get these podcasts transcribed i do lots of other things and it it, it learns my voice it and, and it tags that automatically but it can also just pick up lots of different people's voice so every different guest that i have it understands their voice so what's the technology sitting behind that Right, so that's a, a different area of AI and there's something that's called the automatic speech recognition or ASR. And uh, that, well, like most of AI these days, that's done using deep learning. In the old days, there used to be more, more manual processes. So you would um, essentially analyze the voice and you identify the different levels of energy as, as we speak and turn those into phonemes and you run all kinds of models that um, interpret was the most likely interpretation of the, the noises you've heard, how you'd convert those into, into meaning, into words. So that's also very interesting actually, because um, you have the first part of the process, which makes a set of hypotheses about the sounds it thought it heard, 
but then you also use something that's called a uh, language model that, for instance, based on the words that precede it, is able to disambiguate sometimes between different interpretations just because a certain word is more likely to appear in the context than another. So there's a lot of, uh, of physics to begin with, where you turn the, you do digital signal processing, you turn the, the energy of our voices into digital values, into numbers, and then you, you move towards a bit of um, linguistic analysis. Towards oh, interesting, okay. So when you went to Amazon then, so you were then part of a team that did, and I quote here, the collection of common knowledge. How did you go about doing that? Was it using the techniques that we've just discussed there or was that something different? That's a, a, a pretty standard application of information extraction, actually. So if you think of, let's think of a, a, a web page that it has a lot of information. It's, for instance, something like a Wikipedia page. If you look at some person's Wikipedia page, you will have some core pieces of information on the right-hand side on a table. So you have the birth date, their death date, if they happen to have died, where they went to school, who their parents were, if they're also notable people, and so on. But if you look at that page, you'll have, I don't know, 80, 90% of the information is in the free text, and yeah. some key elements are extracted in that tabular data on the right-hand side. So information extraction can be used to parse the free text and to look for... Um, relationships of interest. For instance, somebody went to school at a certain institution. So you have to find the, the, the name of the person that they're talking about, the name of the institution, and the relationship between the two that that person went to school at that institution. So those are the kind of what, what are called atomic facts or triples, where you have, um, it's, it's a bit like in grammar, you have a subject verb object, here, it's, uh, it's a bit like that, or have this triple. So you have the, the subject of the triple, the relation, and the, the attribute. When you went to, so when you went to Amazon, obviously they hadn't launched Alexa yet. It must have been quite an exciting time to be there. I mean, being part of building Alexa and then seeing it launch and then seeing it come to market, seeing the trends that were coming out after its launch and what the, what the different applications were and things what was it like to be part of the team during those periods it was absolutely exciting so <laughs> well first thing it was that the fact that it was all a secret so we were a very oh, very God. select group of people who knew about that uh, that device and about that project that was about how strict were they about that what, what kind of stuff absolutely. did you have to do <laughs> or not well, to? The, the the secrecy uh, especially for this kind of products that are not yet announced is taken very seriously at amazon and you have a, a very clear understanding of who's allowed to know about it and who isn't and mm. who you should talk to and who you, should talk, you shouldn't. For instance, you're not even supposed to talk to your family about it. Wow. And uh, it's, it's funny. I mean, all of us who work there, they, they have this very understanding, uh, better halves that know when they should stop asking questions because they <laughs> just can't answer. <laughs> but uh, coming back to the project itself, it was... What I found really amazing working at Amazon is that everybody working there is really at the top of their game. And uh, yeah. that kind of lifts you up as well because every conversation you have is very interesting and you, you learn something from it. And I'm not sure we all appreciated it at the time how visionary this new concept of Alexa was because if you think about it, this is the first of its kind. It's a voice-only computer or at least the first version was voice-only. So it's a complete new way of interacting with computers. It's something that can do a lot of the jobs the normal computer can do, but it has no keyboard, it has no mouse, and you can actually use it. You can get useful stuff out of it. That's something that really was revolutionary at the time. And That's a really interesting way to think of it. I've never really thought of it in that way, that it's essentially an operating system. That's, yeah, that's, that's what it is. And being able to make it work with this modality of interaction was something amazing. So the engineers and the scientists who work on the, on the speech recognition on that device really did an amazing job. If you have one at home, you'll notice that it's capable of hearing and understanding you from very far distance. And that was pretty much the first device of that kind that could do that. So before that, speech recognition was really meant to work with a headset. So you have a microphone that's very near your mouth and that's when it works. If it's a further than that, it doesn't work anymore. So that's one of the big, big pieces of work that sits behind the Echo devices. 
and then you have the Alexa personality, which is the, the assistant that is, is ever helpful and it knows about all kinds of things and it can do things for you. Mm. Before before we, we move on to talk about IESO and actually turn this around to uh, more health stuff, what do you think the potential is of Alexa? And obviously that, that there are potentials in the, the health sphere. But I mean, talking, I guess, more widely than that, you know, thinking about it as an operating system that I've never done before, you know, even then it gets my mind racing as to what could be the future. I mean, what do you see the potential as? I mean, you must have been, how long were you there? A couple of years. You must have seen quite a lot of growth in that time. I and mean, where do you think it's going beyond that? Well, th- th- there is a lot of growth. I remember seeing a slide presented uh, from some external organization that was showing that um, echo devices and voice computers, if you want to call them that as a class of devices, they show the highest adoption of all technologies before. So the growth of adoption wow. in, uh, in Alexa is higher than radio when radio was introduced back in the, wow. in the day. So it's really capturing people's imaginations. And if you think about it as a culture, we've always, well, we've been ready for it for quite a while. You think of the Star Trek computer that you just speak to it and it answers and it does things for you. That's something we've, we've, we've dreamed of for, for decades before Alexa came to market. So I guess we've all been waiting for it. And granted, Alexa is not quite at the state of that Star Trek computer, but that's sci-fi, whereas Alexa actually exists. And if you follow it, it's been around for, what, five years now? And mm. it keeps growing in functionality. There's more and more things added to it. And it's developing into an ecosystem as well where different organizations like banks or car companies, they create skills for it and they allow their customers to access the services of those organizations via Alexa. So mm. I think it's an ecosystem that's, that's only going one way and that's towards growing ever bigger. And I think us as users will get used to doing more and more things over these kinds of channels just because they're so convenient. And I know it can be it can be a bit annoying at times when it doesn't get what you mean, but there's a very talented team of scientists and engineers and engineers who are working behind the scenes to improve it and to reduce the number of times when that happens. So it'll it'll get better and better with time. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's like with any technology, isn't it? The, the more that we use it, the more that we feel comfortable with it and the more that we're then accepting of it doing in our lives. And, we just, and you know, that kind of creep of what it starts to do for people, as you say, will only keep growing seemingly because I think, yeah, it is annoying sometimes when it doesn't get things right. But at the end of the day, we still keep using them and then it's just going to keep learning and it's going to keep getting better and therefore it is just going to keep creeping into all our different functionality of our lives and from a from an IESO perspective then you're obviously like very 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 well qualified to start talking about how to structure data properly and, and use natural language processing to actually affect change so the calling to come into health must have been there you know just the the simple fact that there is so much unstructured data in health that you must have been thinking you can really you know go to work on this and make some serious impact absolutely so as a as a scientist my currency is data and that's really what attracted me to we, have this, <laughs> we are not short of that set. in health i can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely and mental health in particular so we're in a period where awareness of mental health is growing and we're striving all of us towards parity of esteem and, and parity of, of everything between physical and mental health and maybe we'll eventually end up in a situation where we don't have this dichotomy anymore really uh, but if you think in terms of technology, mental health has been a bit of a laggard. It's been quite slow in adopting technology. If you just kind of think of what happened with physical health during the 19th and 20th century, where we had the MRIs and CAT scanners invented and then starting to be used, we have all kinds of um, tests that can be done in labs with the blood chemistry and various other kinds of biomarkers that can be understood and we have genetics. And if you compare that to mental health, in mental health, we're still pretty much at the level of a, a paper pad and a pencil. That's, That's really the level point. of technology yeah. that we use. And I, I hypothesize that that's because a lot of the information that's relevant to mental health comes in the form of language, for which we have not had uh, data-driven ways of, of dealing with it. We've not had uh, reliable analysis techniques for language. Before, before the last few years. Uh, so fortunately, because of 
large investments like Amazon is making with Alexa and, and Google and Facebook and many others and a lot of um, academic departments as well. There's a lot of work happening in the area of natural language processing. And we've made a lot of progress now that we now have the technology and the techniques that allow us to, to process large bodies of text, such as the one that we have here at ASO, and to extract meaning and insights out of it. So I think we're, we're really well positioned to start making a difference in the area of mental health and bring some technology to bear and, and turn it into more of a data-driven, more of a quantitative discipline than uh, it has traditionally been. It's a very good point. You know, I, when you started talking, you say, you know, mental health has been slow to adopt new innovation and things. I was about to sort of say that, well, that's across health, actually. That, but you're right, that that isn't correct. Because, as you say, so many technological advances that have happened in the physical side have completely eclipsed the, the lack of movement on that side because you're right it's all it's all speech it's all language it's all talking therapies and and as you say there's been no way for us to essentially digitize those and then structure that data and do things with it so as a data scientist then when you look at a company like IESO which has been going for a little while now you've I mean I was looking at the stats on the website you know almost 30,000 lives have been changed. There's almost 150,000 hours of therapy delivered. So you look at this and you go, there's 150,000 hours of therapy, which has been delivered. You've got transcripts, you've got audio. How do you, how do you think about that then when you go into ISO with the goal of, I, I, I suppose, helping them with diagnosis, helping them with figuring out how they're effective their treatments are i mean for me to to try and think about that you know my mind can't wrap around all of that but how do you then go about solving that problem if somebody comes in or brings you in and says solve this problem for me valentin there's all this data <laughs> and we don't know what to do with it well having lots of data actually is very exciting to a scientist so i'm definitely not complaining about that <laughs> and uh, I just realized you mentioned 150,000 hours, which, which proves to me that we've not updated our website in a while because we're not <laughs> 250,000 hours. Oh, wow. Uh, we're, we're, we're growing our data set a lot. It's, it's almost doubling every year. So it's, it's, it's understandable. Oof. It's a bit difficult to keep up with updating the website. Um, in terms of how we solve the problem, so the, the really exciting opportunity we have is that with techniques in the area of natural language processing, we're able to go inside the actual therapy session and understand what's happening there. A lot of the knowledge we have about mental health is scientifically obtained, but it's obtained in, in things like clinical trials that introduce a new modality of treating patients and then measure the outcomes overall. And there's all kinds of variation in, in how those techniques are applied and you don't always have, uh, have access to those. But you know that a certain protocol, which may have, I don't know, 10, 20 stages, seems to be helpful for people with depression, for instance. What we can do now with the, with the data we have and the techniques we have is that we can actually break that into individual pieces and understand which individual element has an effect on, uh, on a patient uh, outcome. Uh, we're in a very fortunate situation here at ISO because we have um, measurements of, uh, of the intensity of symptoms uh, taken at every session that is delivered. So that gives us a, a data set that comes with uh, the measurement of a certain symptom before the therapy session. We have the contents of the therapy session and then the measurement of the same symptom oh, for the next session. So that gives us the... Um, the values that we can correlate with. So we can see if a particular symptom seems to be going down as a result of, of whatever happened in that session, we can start correlating the contents of the session. So here's, so here's a question then. Do you put the correlations in or does the AI deep learning look for correlations and come up with its own hypotheses? <laughs> that's that's a very insightful question, and I think it brings us into the the choppy waters of AI uh, understandability and <laughs> interpretability. So normally, if uh, in in AI and in deep learning in particular, uh, models are 
essentially black boxes. You, you put mm. data in, you, you add some labels associated with that data, and then it, it learns how to automatically label new data. And then you can measure how well it's doing, so you'll have an idea of the accuracy of the model. However, what you don't have is any idea of why it makes certain decisions. Mm. And that's possibly fine if what you're trying to decide is the, if, if the, the user requested you to turn on a light or to start playing a piece of music. In healthcare, though, that may not be good enough. So even if you have some um, confidence in the accuracy of your model, you would really like to understand why it's making certain decisions. So in order to be mindful of, of that, we've, um, we've actually attacked this problem slightly differently. So we've come up with a set of uh, categories of, um, of things that may be relevant in a therapy session. And these come from like the, the manuals of CBT, essentially. There are things like setting agenda, which is supposed to happen at the beginning of the session. If you're doing a bridging between the previous session, the current session, so the first okay, session yeah. is supposed to, to remind the patient what was discussed last time. They're supposed to check on homework. They're supposed to... Okay, yeah, so it's a clear kind of things. of things that could make a difference. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And there's also the kind of things that a clinician would understand and recognize. So, yeah, um, and be able to that, kind of demarcate yeah okay exactly exactly so rather than training a system that automatically tells this looks like a good session we've trained a system that is able to identify these 25 elements that we've defined that uh. are have clinical relevance so then what our system does it, it analyzes a session and then it scores it in terms of how much time was spent in each of these 25 categories of, of types of things that therapists may do and then we do some further statistical analysis where we correlate the amount of time spent in each of those different categories and the outcomes for the patient. So we're, we're now able to say this session looks really good because there was a collaborative yeah. setting, there was a large time spent on change methods, uh, there was a homework given, and so on. So you can basically end up saying then that was a good session because the agenda was set clearly and we spent... I don't know, 200% extra time on reviewing last week's homework and then focusing on setting next week's homework. And, and that increase in time on this element seems to show correlation of better sessions down the line so that then you can then give your advice to your therapist saying, well, for this type of person, blah, 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 seems to make a difference. Have I got that right? Yes, although you're skipping a few steps into the future, so <laughs> we're definitely planning to, to, to do those kinds of things. So, so we have we have this system that analyzes a session. It can tell us it can tell us if it's a good quality, if all the important elements were present, mm. and we also have some research done into which of those elements tend to correlate better with outcomes in general. So for for the whole population. And we've actually recently published a paper in JAMA Psychiatry that describes these results. But you've actually touched onto a point that's very much in our focus, which is to start using this kind of technology as our data set increases to start understanding what works for whom. So currently we have an understanding of what seems, tends to work for everybody. So we know mm. what makes good CBT in general. But we're now moving to a, a deeper understanding of this field and understanding different patient variables such as age and gender and maybe socioeconomic status, how those impact the types of um, change methods in CBT that may be more effective for those people. And that is really interesting. Different, uh, disorders as well. Yeah, that, I, I can definitely see how you have to be very careful, don't you? And it has to be grounded in quite solid research principles if you're going to draw these types of conclusions you can't be sort of maverick and just say oh our data suggests that if you spend loads of time doing this one thing all the all the all the sessions get loads better and you because you, you don't know do you? you don't know what's actually going to work and, unless you've done and you, you want to feel confident as well don't you right because you're you're the care provider at the end of the day and you want to feel that you're definitely on you know on not only on the right track but actually you know adhering to quite clear principles that that you hold of, of yourselves which i think 
sounds absolutely you know wonderful that, that you guys are doing that and it sounds that the data set just sounds incredible you know 250,000 hours of this stuff to go through I mean as you say it must be incredibly hard to keep up with on your on your website you've got quite a cool video if you if you go to um the I think you've got a data science link actually that I clicked mm-hmm. on and there's a video on there which describes your what you've what you've called the digital futures lab which sort of talks about what we've been discussing here essentially it's kind of like a video infographic which talks about all the different ways that you're researching and you know developing these different hypotheses and and potentially treatments in the future i mean what was interesting there was that the other thing that was mentioned was biomarkers so do you do you are you doing that right now do you want to talk about that a little bit and and if you're not doing it now what the future is to kind of link all that stuff and and bring in biomarkers as part of that conversation right so we we do have a project on biomarkers but it may not be the kind of biomarkers you necessarily expect when you hear that word so it's uh, it's something that we term cognitive and behavioral biomarkers oh interesting and there are the types of information that we can extract about the patient uh, by passively observing, for instance, the, their use of mobile phones. So um, in terms of behavior biomarkers, those are things like um, how much does a, a, a patient, let's say, move in geographical space? Mm. Do they spend all of their time either at home and at work, or do they have several locations they tend to visit on a weekly basis, for instance? There are things like levels of physical activity. If you happen to have one of those health trackers attached to your phone, then you can understand how much the, um, the patient is, is physically active. And then you also can collect uh, information about social behaviors in the, in the sense of um, usage of apps, for instance. How often does a particular person open Facebook? How much time they spend on Facebook? How many times they activate their phone over an hour, how many messages, either text messages or other kind they exchange, how wide is their social network, how many different people do they exchange messages with on, on an average day. So all of those things we think can correlate with mental state. And once you've established a baseline for a person, any change in those indicators may be indicative of um, of something that's of interest in, in the area of mental health. And then on the other side, the cognitive biomarkers, they're, they're a bit more difficult to describe, but there are things that we can extract from the way people speak. And in this case, we're thinking particular about patients and in the way they, they, they talk in, um, in sessions, for instance. There's a very interesting hypothesis that are working on testing, which is that um, the effectiveness of the relationship between a patient and a therapist depends a lot on personality, which is something that we, we, we can probably agree that, that does, it's worth investigating. Um, for instance, one example is that there are two styles of therapists. One of them can be very didactic, didactic where they, they direct the patient towards what they need to do. So the, the therapist kind of takes ownership of the therapeutic process and they tell the patient, you'll do this, this and that, and then you'll feel much better. And opposed to that is a much more collaborative style of therapy, where, which is what CBT actually recommends, where the, the therapist uh, involves the patient in the process and they say, we will do these things together and we'll, we'll work and we'll get you better. Now, there's a hypothesis that different personalities of patients may respond differently to these styles. And it could be that the didactic style that's not usually recommended may be suitable for certain patients. So we're, we're trying to investigate that by, uh, by doing some analysis on, on patient language and trying to um, assess wow. their personality based on that and then find out if we can find any correlations. Wow. So this is a project, a research project that's currently in progress. It's uh, partially funded by a, a funder here in the UK called Innovate UK, yeah. which is uh, who's helping us with, uh, with this project. Very cool. There's me thinking that biomarkers meant like the the levels of like free T4 and thyroid <laughs> hormone in the blood and things. In that case, then, if if you're analysing all that different social behaviour and and you know feeding all of that into your AI deep learning models, etc., you must be able to come up with some pretty personalised 
treatments? That is the hope. So this project is very much at the beginning, so we don't yet know how um, how far we'll get. And it's currently we're working under research. <laughs> I can tell that you're a technologist rather than uh, an entrepreneur <laughs> because the entrepreneur would not be so honest. <laughs> yes, well, I'm first and foremost a scientist, and yeah. uh, I, I like to be yeah. precise in my language. by the phrase "I don't know," which is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So we, we're trying. Under a research protocol, you can be quite um, intrusive because the patients give you consent to do that. Yeah. And we can collect a lot of data and then we'll see what, what kind of data actually is useful. Uh, in practice, for to turn this into, into clinical practice, we can't be that intrusive. So we'll have to find the right balance on the kind of data that people would be happy to share and the kind of data that gives us most benefit in terms of informing their, um, their treatment. So that's, uh, that's a piece of work that we're doing with, um, with the patients panel that we're interviewing and we're, we're discussing with them what they find acceptable and, uh, and, and those kinds of conversations are taking place. And at the same time, we're doing the technical work to find out which of these data streams is the most informative and which, which would, would find most useful to, um, to inform treatments. I imagine from the technology side, i.e. so you've got quite a lot of things that you could do. I mean, there's not, there's not infinite resource and there's not infinite time. So you must have to prioritize exactly where you think the wins are going to be, especially when you're building out, you know, such a, a structure of different projects and all these different things. So what is it that you guys are particularly focused on at the moment from the technology side of, of crunching all this data and, and coming up with new models? Right. So the, one thing I, I wanted to mention about the, the futures lab that you, you saw on our website mm -hmm. is that's what we call our research lab. And what we found was really important was the, um, the multidisciplinarity of it. Uh, so our lab comprises clinical scientists, AI scientists, and, uh, and engineers. And we will work together with the other teams in the company, with like the clinical team that, that have very deep domain expertise and the technology team that uh, build the, the therapy platform. And, and so on. So I find this confluence of different skill sets and different uh, points of view over the same thing to be, to be really important. Anyway, coming back to your question, the, the main focus we have is on the, um, on the project that uh, is something we call TIM, which stands for Therapy Insights Model. And it's this uh, deep learning model that uh, gives us understanding of what happens in the therapy room. Uh, the piece of work we've published in, uh, in JAMA Psychiatry was to do with analyzing the language of the therapist. We're now moving on to see if we can um, identify different classes of responses from patients. So when the therapist is trying to apply a certain change method, is the patient receptive or not receptive to that? And can we find better ways of, of doing those change methods? And... Uh, Another thing we're looking at is getting a much more fine-grained understanding. So uh, I was mentioning that we can't look at 25 categories of content. Ultimately, we'd want to have probably 200 categories of content so that we have much more fine-grained understanding of the different change methods that are being used so that we can get a better a higher level of insight that we can turn into a new clinical practice. Mm. Essentially, our, our slogan, our logo is uh, what works for whom. So that's what we're trying to, to determine. And today, treatments are recommended based on the diagnosis, so based on the condition. Uh, we think in the future that we'll have to move to more, stra more stratified uh, treatments and more personalized uh, care once we have enough data that we can address an N of one, so to speak, in, in study terms. Yeah, I totally agree. So from a business perspective, then obviously the, the tech development that you guys are doing and obviously to find out, you know, what works for whom there's, there's a business reason behind that, because obviously you're going to be able to personalize your care. You're going to get better results. You're going to get, you know, far more patients impacted in a positive way. And, you know, your service is going to be in more demand. So how do you guys work with your business team to figure out the best things to do from a business perspective of those of those things been worked out as okay we can deliver x amount more care we can deliver x amount more care to x amount more patients how does it work in terms of linking the tech to the business side 
So we're not that big an organization, so we tend to have quite close work relationship with all the teams. I do. In terms of, in terms of biz dev, uh, what you need in order to, to gain business is differentiation. And from the beginning, from the very beginning, the company decided that our differentiation should be the highest quality care possible. So uh, we're working very hard on, on improving recovery rates. We, we are proud that we have better recovery rates than the, the average uh, therapy service in the UK. And the way we do that is through the science work that we do and through the, um, the work done by our clinical team who, who supervise all the care that uh, we're delivering. So that's kind of the main, the main help that we offer to the, um, the biz dev team. They're also very excited every time we, we publish something or we have a, a new piece of work that we can talk about because this is really attractive to, to customers. Uh, our customers, most of them are, are, are part of the NHS and lots of people who work in NHS also have a, a part of their career that's to do with research. So this kind of work really resonates with lots of people and it also gives us the, the, the credentials to, to, to prove that we mean it when we say that we want to make a difference and we really want to improve the, the quality of care beyond where it is today. I must admit, you know, taking a deep dive into the technical side of this, it's not often I've done that on this podcast so far. And it's been really insightful because I completely agree with what you're saying, that your differentiator is, is the highest quality care possible. There are lots of companies, I imagine, that can provide a mental health service and, you know, NHS organizations might procure or have the opportunity to procure lots of different um, organizations to deliver that care. But if you guys are differentiating yourselves by such a high quality and you're then, you know, part of the research world and part of, you know, pushing the field forwards and things, I can understand exactly why you would want to be those organizations would want to procure you and it really comes out in everything that you've talked about you know you wouldn't necessarily need to do all these things if you wanted to be an okay or good provider and pick up a few contracts but actually you guys are really pushing the limits here aren't you you're really trying to stay you know at the, at the real kind of front end of, of this these conversations this research and all of this technical development which you speculate to accumulate don't you and, and there's there's clearly you know there's a big spend associated with doing all these things and you could easily just be you know a follower of all these things but to consider yourselves you know front you know front and center you know top of your game you know it's like you said with with amazon you know that they, they fill their company with people that are really trying to push the limits and you're trying to do that here which i think is a really it's a really honorable, it's a really, it's a really great thing. Um, and you seem driven by, as you say, the impact that you're making, which you must get a lot of nice feedback. I imagine working at a company that delivers a mental health service, there must be people that get in touch just saying, you know, it was a high quality of care. It, it, it did change my life. And again, I saw on your website, this has probably gone up based on what you said before, but your net promoter scores 91. I mean, that's, in, that's, that's ludicrously high <laughs> from what I've seen around. Yes, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. we as a company, we invest a lot in, in science. So about 10% of our staff are, are working in the research lab. And uh, yes, we didn't have to do that. It's just that's what we've decided to do. So we're trying to, to really make a difference. And we're very much a mission-driven organization, which mm. is it's very pleasant for us as people who work here because it's it's very nice place to work. It's very good coming to work in the morning, looking forward to what we will achieve that day. Uh, also, kind of from a business point of view, that allows us to have a very talented uh, team of people because yeah, we all share this mission. And there are lots of people who work here who could probably make a lot more money in other organizations, but they come to AISA because they, they feel like they want to make a difference and, and they can. Mm. And on, on the science side, the availability of this data set is what uh, gives us uh, hope that we will be able to make a big impact. And uh, that's, that's probably what motivates a, a lot of us on, a, on the science side. Uh, in terms of, you're mentioning the, the feedback we get from our patients, uh, that's a lot to do with our clinical team who, who are, are really motivated to offer a good patient experience, not just the right treatment for patients, but also a, a good experience. And that's really important, I think, and in these days of uh, consumers is what, it's, it's what consumers are expecting to see. And we're trying to, to meet them. 
amazing. So as a technology expert in natural language processing, you've spent this amount of time in healthcare and, or, you know, you've become an expert in it from a mental health perspective. Paint a picture for me of how you see the future. So that could be, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years in, in, in the future. I don't know. But what does the future hold when this technology has been around for decades? What do you think that looks like? I would say that um, artificial intelligence in general has a great contribution to make in healthcare. I think we're only at the beginning of that path and we're still finding our fit. And sometimes uh, we make mistakes, sometimes uh, data is being used without the necessary permission, like uh, various uh, scandals have, uh, have shown in the mm-hmm. press some, some time ago. But I think there's such a great value in, in, in the use of data, and especially in an environment like the NHS, where we have so much data about so many people, that we can uh, power discovery processes that will be so much faster than, than traditionally. So I think that's... Uh, that's the, the, the great um, benefit you can expect from, from AI. It will allow us to do more science and discover better treatments. And, and it's like you said before, isn't it? I mean, all of that then leads to more personalized care because you're picking the right treatment for the right person. And I think from a mental health perspective, that would be wonderful. I think that that needs to happen because up until recently, most treatments were meant for everybody mm-hmm. and they have a certain effectiveness rate, which is never 100%. So in order to, to push towards better outcomes and better results, we need to move towards more personalized care because one, one solution doesn't fit all. Unfortunately, we're, we're mm-hmm. human beings and they're all very different and uh, that makes healthcare difficult, but it's also where we have opportunities to improve. Yeah, you've definitely given me a real understanding of, of how difficult it is then to innovate in, in mental health, actually. You know, that, that notion that if you're going to personalize care in the, in the physical side of health, I'm just thinking now, like, oh, just do a quick genetic test and then you know, just decide on what drug dose is correct and away you go. Not so easy in, in the mental health world, world. So natural language processing experts are obviously going to be in extremely high demand to push the the field and i just want to leave you with uh, or in fact i might as well ask you about it so we have to be careful don't we with ai as you say it's not quite there yet i just want to quote you from what you said on our last call that um ai might beat you at chess but it certainly won't realize that the room's on fire how long will it be until do you think we can we can trust ai in health <laughs> i don't know well probably quite a while. So uh, an AI that you can fully trust is essentially what's called an artificial general intelligence, which is something that's similar to us. The Holy and I think most of the press spends a lot of time talking about AGI. I yeah. think most of the domain experts don't really take that that seriously because we don't really know how we'll get there. In the meantime, while trying to get to AGI, there's a lot of specific artificial intelligence that we can build and that gets better and better and better. But because it's not a general intelligence, I think for the foreseeable future, it will need some human help. However, computers don't get bored. Computers don't make uh, routine mistakes. Computers don't lose attention towards the end of the day because they're hungry or they're tired. So if we can use computers to do what they're best at and combine that with some human intuition and human skill and human collaboration, human, 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 human-to-human communication, then I think that's where the, the greatest benefits are to be extracted out of um, AI in healthcare. Totally agree. Make it part of the team. And that's, that's the most important thing. I'm, I was actually at a panel thing yesterday and someone on the panel was asked about, uh, you know, what, how, what happens when AI makes mistakes, you know, all the usual questions. And it, it, it's sort of a redundant question in a way, because at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's going to be so long before, as you've said, AI is going to be completely trusted to just start running hospitals and treating everybody without human input. The point is we're going to make it part of the team. The clinician's still going to be responsible, but the clinician's going to have an understanding of, of what the limitations of that AI are, but also what the benefits of, of that AI are. So it can be part of that conversation in treating those patients. And then, for, yeah, we might reach the point one day 
and it might be sometime soon it might not be but those algorithms will then have to be regulated somebody will have to be in charge if it goes wrong but until then let's bring it in as part of the team and start feeling some benefits of it and and hopefully we'll get that creep just like the amazon alexa's creeping into everything else that we do and we're beginning to trust it hopefully it can creep into the rest of healthcare and start improving quality and dropping costs which is absolutely what we all want but valentin thank you so much for coming on the podcast i've i always say this that i've learned a lot but i've definitely learned a lot this time because we explored the tech side which we, we we often really focus on business but it's been cool to focus on tech I, I just want to ask you for for the final bit of the podcast um, the way we end these is i hand back over to you to kind of summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit about what you're doing at ieso and then if you've got any asks of our audience then feel free to take that away so over to you to close us out oh, thank you james it's been a pleasure to to be on the podcast so uh, I'm a Valentin. I'm an AI scientist uh, with about 20 years experience working mainly on natural language processing. Uh, that's an area that is being used all around you, even if you may not notice it, but most notably in, in devices such as Alexa. However, where it can really make a difference, I think, is in mental health, uh, which is an, an area of healthcare that has, a bit has been a bit slow to, um, to acquire technology possibly because a lot of the, the information that's relevant is encoded as language and we've not had the tools to, to work with language. Now we do have those tools, advantages, advances such as deep learning and machine learning uh, are making natural language processing more accurate. Uh, in order to use those, you need a lot of data, but fortunately, at least at AISO, we do have a lot of data, so we're able to use the, the most modern techniques and that allows us to, to get um, a series of insights into what happens in therapy that have never been available before at this kind of scale. And with a large scale comes great statistical power that uh, will, will allow us to understand what kind of therapy works for, for whom, and that will allow us to move towards more personalized care and um, ultimately lead to, to better outcomes for, um, for our patients. I think uh, this is a very important thing to do and I'm, I'm really happy that I get to work on it. Amazing. And our audience is anything from clinicians, investors, corporates, patients, everybody listens to this podcast. So do you have any asks of any of those groups? I, I really liked the way you've put it about uh, making AI part of the team. I think in healthcare, we're already used to working in multidisciplinary care teams. And uh, just adding AI to that is one extra member of the team. And uh, I think we should uh, be open to that, for, for that to happen. Uh, when it does happen, we need to understand its strengths and its weaknesses and, uh, and trust it accordingly. But um, give it a chance because it has a lot to contribute. Amazing. And if people want to get in touch with you or IESO, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So probably the easiest option is to use the, the contact us link on our website, which is isohealth.com. Uh, and if uh, it's a contact uh, particularly for me, then uh, they can mention that they, they want to talk to me. Alternatively, I'm also available on, on LinkedIn and uh, at, uh, on Twitter under VTablan, V-T-A-B-L-A-N. Hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.